welcome everyone. This is another edition of On the Barricades, your favorite weekly political show delivered to you by Eastern European journalists, uh, academics and uh, activists. And uh, today we're going to discuss uh, Russia-Ukraine crisis war, uh, something that we, uh, we've been discussing for the last three weeks, almost three weeks since the beginning of that war. Uh, with me, as usual, is the co-host of the program, Maria Chernat. Hello, Maria. Hello. And now to our special guest, uh, Mark Sloboda. Hello, Mark. Boyan, Maria, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be with you on the barricades. Thanks, likewise. So just to remind you, Mark Sloboda is an international security expert who served in the United States Navy before uh, studying at uh, Moscow's Lomonosov University. Uh, and London School of Economics. I taught. And <laughs> oh, okay. All right. And I London taught it. Yes. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. So excuse, pardon me for that mistake. He is now a senior lecturer and researcher at Moscow State University. Is that is that still the case? Uh, that is not still the case. Uh -huh, okay. uh, that was the case for a couple of years, but to be honest, they don't pay a lot. <laughs> uh -huh, I, I do a lot of media work now. All right. All right. Uh, so, uh, Mark, uh, I'd like to begin with your assessment of how uh, the military campaign is progressing. Uh, the media all around the Western world is uh, convincing us that Russia is losing big time and that there is a widespread demoralization among Russian troops uh, who have done apparently nothing but retreat in the last 10 days or so. And uh, well, obviously, I'm not prepared to believe in this, uh, but uh, there are some indications of, of some mistakes, maybe even significant mistakes. It's difficult for me to judge you're the expert here on the part of the Russian strategists. So, uh, you know, the question is, maybe the first two questions are, what is the current state of affairs on all fronts, according to what you know? Uh, what do we know for sure, uh, if anything? And, and did the Russians really expect uh, to be greeted with flowers and a song, like, you know, many people are, are actually uh, discussing uh, or making a talking point out of it saying that they were expecting this warm welcome and it never happened. What's uh, what's your opinion? Yeah, well, it, it's quite obvious that uh, the, the Russian army is completely defeated, uh, that they are all um, defecting uh, in in mass droves. Um, they've left all of their equipment behind and it's all being pulled away by Ukrainian tractors. Um, the uh, Russian people have risen up in the streets and are overthrowing uh, the government and Ukrainian uh, troops, uh, in particular, uh, the Azov and right sector freedom fighters um, are already in Vladivostok uh, and it's over. I mean, it's quite obvious that the Kiev regime is winning the war, uh, the, the information <laughs> war, uh, the, the, the war of, of memes. Um, and <laughs> yes. if if memes won wars that is it would be over i mean done done signed sealed delivered right yeah okay but outside outside this yeah. uh, humoristic framework that you just yeah. presented we, we should uh, I, I guess acknowledge that uh, you know the, the russians are losing the info war big well, time I, I would just big want time. to weigh in and say that unfortunately is also tragic because a lot of people believe it with all their hearts yeah. and yeah. souls yeah, it's um, it's pretty amazing. And of course, it's not really to say that the regime in Kiev is winning the information war. The Western mainstream media and and 
the amplifying power of of a cancel culture, a woke cancel culture in the United States and, and across the West that has been activated, that has won the information war, right? Never mind all the debunked, ridiculous stories from the Snake Island fiasco where uh, the Kiev regime presented a story that 13 brave uh, Ukrainian naval infantry refused to surrender to a Russian warship and, and said uh, famously, F you Russian warship. And um, they uh, were then obliterated by Putin's laser beam eyes or something. And they were all proclaimed heroes of Ukraine posthumously. And uh, it's now being, you can buy FU Russian uh, warship uh, uh, memorabilia t-shirts and coffee mugs on, on Amazon, on eBay, right? I mean, it's everywhere. It's across banners, across social media. <laughs> Little problem, none of this ever happened. Um, <laughs> there were actually 83 naval infantry on Snake Island. They were abandoned by their military and the regime. Uh, they all surrendered without contest when the Russian uh, 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 warship, uh, you know, fleet uh, came and asked them to surrender. They have all been treated fine. They've all talked to their families. They're all I, I, just a little bit peeved that they have been used <laughs> in this way. Uh, in an obvious false deaths presented. Um, it, it, but people will still be repeating this. And that slogan is going to be, I mean, it has not penetrated the narrative. There are no retractions in the mainstream media, right? Uh, you know, about this. The Guardian still has a story up without any corrections two weeks, you know, after it was, oh yeah, the, uh, the, the government in Kiev admits, okay, so yeah, actually none of them are dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, or, or the or ghost of Kiev. The like, ghost you know, of Kiev. The, yeah, please the speak U about The Ukrainian ghostly fighter jet uh, that has shot down the entire Russian Air Force twice over. It's now moving on to the Chinese Air Force uh, and then rises every morning to do it again. Uh, uh, yeah, okay, so not true. Yeah, it's uh, a real ghost. It doesn't yeah. exist. <laughs> Russia purposefully targeting maternity hospitals that are not being used by headquarters by azov neo-nazi death squad right also uh, quite clearly uh fake um and the general prognosis of this war you know that that the kiev is winning that the russian troops are all demoralized and defected and okay russia has made mistakes <laughs> in this campaign uh, they, they hoped for a quick decapitation strike is what it appears to be in the first three days of the conflict. There was kind of some bungled thunder runs along Ukrainian roads by um, uh, Russian military units operating out of their usual combined arms formations, infantry without tanks, tanks without infantry, both without air defense units, right, you know. Um, they were racing along to seize key junctions, and there was a, it seems that there was a plan to seize an airport outside of Kiev um, and to, uh, with uh, the VDV, the Russian uh, paratroopers, um, and then uh, basically fly troops in to Kiev and, and just take over the city. Um, when I was, uh, you know, talking about the intervention from November on, 
I said, I hoped that the Russian government, even the Russian military, had a plan for a decapitation strike at Kiev that they could end the regime quickly and minimize uh, you know, uh, deaths of the Russian military, of the Ukrainian military, civilian casualties. Yeah, they had a plan. On our program. Yeah. Yes, they had a plan. It was a bad one. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it, it, th- that's what we can discern, that they had an original plan. The other thing they've done is they, in particularly in like the first two weeks of the campaign, they extremely limited, they were using Air Force, not at all. Like, like, like there was barely any usage of it. In fact, there's articles out there in the national interest and elsewhere. Why is Russia's Air Force sitting this war out, right? Mm-hmm. And Russia assembled a pretty significant air force, not only of, of, of uh, attack aircraft, fighter bombers, um, uh, the drones have still set out the conflict, um, uh, close air support helicopters, uh, you know, for, for taking out tanks, KA-52s and, and so on didn't use any of it. Uh, they barely used artillery. And Russia is, the Russian military, if anything, is artillery heavy. That's what they do, is artillery. The Russian military is not designed for offense, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Russian military strategy and their entire force structure is designed at a mobile defense, retreating along Russia and the Belarusian plains, right? Taking heavy air uh, assault uh, by NATO and keeping going and using artillery at a distance to trade space, uh, you know, for uh, attrition. They're not designed for urban combat. And, all right. That's why they're avoiding it, right? They, well, they're avoiding it. They also want to avoid civilian casualties. Uh, the, the Russian military was quite clear from the very beginning. The messages going out were, you know, Ukrainian regular army, uh, you know, please lay down their guns. We're not at war with you. We're not at war with the Ukrainian people. We're at war with the regime in Kiev. Uh, and, uh, you know, we would just like to get rid of that. And then, in fact, we, you can take over if you want. They actually made that suggestion to the Ukrainian military. Um, Very little of that happened that we can tell. Mm -hmm. Um, Electronic warfare. Russia has tremendous electronic warfare capabilities, better than the United States, as most US experts will tell you. Haven't used them at all. They haven't shut down communications. Quite obviously, the information war (laughs) is being dominated out of Kiev, right? Uh, None of that's been used at all. Um, yeah, exactly. But is there a purpose in this? I mean, yes, uh, exactly. there's got to be some, why are, something. Why are they doing this? The assessment of not just me, but if we want to talk top U.S. serious mil- Russian military experts, I'm not talking about the pundit head, the pundit talking heads, the Washington Post. But if you're taking a look at the serious like Michael Kaufman at the Center for Naval Analysis and the Center for New American Security, he's the Russian military exman. Uh, Rob Lee, who is at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, expert on Eurasian militaries, um, uh, also uh, a PhD at uh, King's War College. Um, that what they're saying is that the Russian military was trying so hard not just to minimize civilian casualties, but minimize casualties to the Ukrainian army and to minimize infrastructure damage 
an inconvenience to ordinary Ukrainians' lives during the first two weeks of the campaign, that it severely impeded their campaign. This was not a US-style shock and awe, right, bombing of Iraq for 30 days uh, before they went in compared, you know, like, like the US entry uh, into Iraq. They did not do that. Um, they probably should have done a little bit more of that <laughs> um, uh, without, you know, turning into, you know, flattening of I Iraqi cities style stuff. But um, they were quite clearly focused for the most part for the first two weeks after the decapitation strike failed on military infrastructure, bases, ammo depots, uh, this sort of thing. Um, and uh, particularly any bases that had been refurbished with NATO funds for mm. use for training uh, and, you know, the large number of, uh, you know, thousands of NATO trainer and advisors that were in the country. Like the one near the Polish border? Yeah. This truck two days ago? Yaroviv, uh, near Lvov. This was just hit uh, uh, a, a couple days ago. And this was a sprawling facility in Western Ukraine near the Polish border. Um, it was used for NATO training of Ukrainian troops. Um, by all accounts, there were probably still NATO trainers and advisors there. Uh, large numbers had been in and out. It is almost certain that that base was being used as a transfer station for Western arms uh, being flooded into Ukraine, javelins, man pads, you know, whatever else. Now they're talking uh, missile systems, uh, 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 surface-to-air missiles, and, and so forth. Um, and there was a large number of uh, Western mercenary volunteers. The, the Reddit Legion was there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and Russia already made clear um, that they would consider such foreign, you know, adventurers in this conflict as unlawful combatants. And uh, they would hunt them down with extreme prejudice. So don't come. Mm. <laughs> and right. this is what they did. And they hit this base with 30 caliber cruise missiles, 30. <laughs> they demolished it. Almost all the foreign legion is gone. <laughs> and those that got out are now having a hard time getting out of Ukraine because evidently they were forced to sign contracts that they will continue to serve uh, forever. And, um, you know, until the conflict is over and they're not being let out, they're being smuggled out by uh, in Red Cross jackets and dressing as women. Uh, another thing that may surprise a lot of, of, of people is that um, the Kiev regime itself has instituted a 100 percent draft of the country. No men between the ages of 16 to 60 are allowed out of the country. Yes, 16. and I just want to weigh in because yeah. the Romanian border, I know for sure, and journalists documented cases of men that are just bribing the, yes. the guards. And basically, uh, you have people that paid at the beginning of this whole uh, uh, invasion and uh, this whole atrocity. You had people paying 200 uh, euros. Now it costs around 2,000 euros for That's a man. That's what I heard. Up to the markets have dollars. spoken. The markets have spoken, have spoken yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's the cost of a man. They've actually drafted a lot of women as well, uh, you know, depending on their, their, their skills. So this is an entirely a conscript force, literally not allowed out of the country and, and forced to fight. And these foreign fighters, they're all now trying to flee as well. 
Um, lots of stories of both them and regular, you know, uh, Ukrainian uh, civilian men trying to dress up as women <laughs> to get yeah, out yeah. of the country. Yeah, well, but obviously, yeah. I mean, this kind yes. of thing that happened close to the Polish border, I mean, obviously, it's something you don't have to have a military uh, expertise in order to understand that uh, this is not a move on the part of a defeated army. I mean, this yeah. is not how, how, you know, things play out in a situation in such circumstances. So obviously this is a fairy story like about yeah. their retreat. Uh, but uh, anyway, you mentioned Kiev and I want to ask you about Kiev and about the situation there. But uh, while, you know, the Western media in general, they appear to be focusing exactly on, on Kiev, Kiev, you know, uh, uh, like in a sense that they've got all of their reporters there, they've got all of their stuff there, you know, Zelensky is apparently there. Uh, and uh, of course, this manufacture of uh, those weird stories that are being circulated <clears throat> and turned and turned into some kind of emblematic uh, uh, you know elements of this Western discourse uh, are produced there but you know many experts uh, I have to confess that I don't know those that you listed out but uh, for example people like Scott Reader uh, they say that the most important battles actually appear to be taking place elsewhere, specifically in, in you know, in Ukraine's southeast uh, around Mariupol and southwest uh, of the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, People's Republics or, you know, the territory there. And I want to ask you if you agree uh, and, and uh, with this with this assessment. Uh, and why is this, uh, if you do, then why, why is the situation in that region uh, so important from the military point of view? And uh, is the Russian victory on the horizon there? And, and if so, will it actually mark some kind of turning point? Yeah. Uh, one more detail about uh, this uh, military base in West Ukraine. It was struck by 30 caliber cruise missiles from air launched, mm -hmm. right? Launched from aircraft for a specific reason to point out that even if the, the West tried to in, enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine, right, meaning engaging the Russian Air Force and potentially starting World War III because Russia already has a no-fly zone over uh, Ukraine, not just with their Air Force, but with their most powerful air defense systems in Belarus, you know, covering that whole area and uh, S-400s and everywhere. But to send them a message that even if you did, we would still destroy <laughs> anything you send across the border. That was a very specific message. But this was so obvious. I, I don't know. For me, who I'm not a military expert, it was so obvious that they would do uh, such a thing. Yes. I mean, why is that a surprise for everybody? Because <laughs> it is, you know, NATO de facto territory that base was. And it's shocking to them that Russia would do it, I guess. I don't that they would dare to. I don't know. Because uh, Anthony Blinken apparently told Lavrov, Lavrov uh, uh, recited uh, in the last week uh, a detail that Blinken had told him, you don't get it, do you? Ukraine is ours now. <laughs> that really? Is what, that is what Lavrov says that Blinken told him. Uh, that's come out oh. in the last week. Um, so, you know, it's like. Uh, they're surprised at having their territory. So after the first two weeks of the, of the war, it's obvious that Russia gave up on this war light strategy. They were fighting effectively with one hand tied behind their back and a kid glove on the other hand. 
Now they're just fighting with both hands in front and both hands wearing kid gloves. But they're still only using a fraction, particularly of their air resources. Drones have, have played a very limited role uh, so far. There's a lot of speculation that they are reserving their best military units, their best munitions, their most uh, a lot of their precision guided munition and so forth, um, in case that NATO does intervene. And then it would turn into a conventional NATO-Russia war in Ukraine scenario. And that is a contingency plan. And that actually makes a lot of sense to me. But it's obvious that they needed to, to enact a different campaign, that, that the Kiev regime was not just going to fall over, that they had- And also the Russian troops, oh, sorry, the, the yeah. Ukrainian troops seem to be putting up a serious yeah. fight. Yeah. In 2014, right after the government was overthrown, And the new regime ordered the military to go into Donbass, and they would have to Crimea as well. The, the Ukrainian military did not respond because they were not following the orders of the new regime. No one wanted to follow it. There were literally, unreported in most of the West, there were tens of thousands of defections from the police, the military, the security services. And you don't have to trust me on that. Can you trust Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty? Oh, <laughs> because, yeah, well, on this detail, I think you can, because they actually did a report, an example of this. In the Ukrainian Navy, they reported in a special a video production that 75% of Ukrainian Navy personnel either defected or quit. That was it. The, the military was gone. They had one military unit that responded right, uh, of, 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 their, of their version of the Vedeve, of paratroopers, um, to Donbass, uh, when the Donbass, you know, started to organize militias and refused to follow the orders of the new regime in Kiev. And they went in, they started going into the small towns, you know, moving toward Donetsk uh, in the Donbass region. And they were met by crowds of ordinary people you know, old women, you know, men, kids coming out and standing in front of their tanks and APCs. The videos are still all over YouTube, right? This is, you know, where the conflict started. And the Ukrainian military, you know, that unit was like, well, I thought they were Russian terrorists. <laughs> I thought, and they just gave up and went home. Hmm. That unit was disbanded <laughs> on orders of Kiev. And then they sent the battalions in. Right. They, 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 the, the battalions that had been formed on the Maidav, Azov, right sector, Tornado, Idar, and they started shelling the cities of Donbass from afar uh, with the artillery. And, and, you know, the conflict started from there. But since then, starting the, at that point and for the next year, two years, the new regime did a good job of purging the military of everyone who hadn't defected or quit and bringing their own people in. Right. Particularly people. Uh, it's well known that the Ukrainian military has been infiltrated by a large number of Azov, right sector, C-14 and the others who are quite clear that they're directing their members to join the military, to join the police, to join the security services. And just a whole lot of people from Western Ukraine who are more ideologically disposed towards the, the regime in Kiev than say their Eastern counterparts. Okay, and then they had these eight years to train them and to put it train all together. Train them, trained and by NATO, right? It, it, and they solidified and it appears that Russia Uh, the Russian military government, the Russian intelligence, 
severely underestimated th their conviction uh, to fight for this regime. Um, I think that's pretty obvious. They have the force. They assembled the force if that didn't work, but they were slow putting it into action. And I think mm -hmm. there were mistakes made. But right now, the war is basically in four fronts. OK, mm -hmm. there is still the front of Kiev and Kiev is slowly being surrounded by a very large force, but they're quite specifically not advancing into the city at this point, not because they can't, but because their still intent is they don't want to be seen as leveling Kiev unless all other diplomatic options, you know, putting this type of pressure on Zelensky and police negotiations fail. So that is kind of a slowly tightening vice. Um, in the north, there is very heavy combat around uh, Chornohiv and in the northeast in Har uh, Harkov, uh, Kharkiv in the Ukrainian pronunciation. Um, and um, that seems to be extremely heavy fighting in a siege type environment there. Just as is always the such situation, the inferior force in this condition, retreats into the cities and uses the buildings as, you know, shields yeah. and firing positions. And whether you're the U.S. military going into Fallujah or Mosul, right, or the Russian military going into these cities, there is going to be lots of destruction. Or Russian Russian military yes. going to Aleppo when he makes this uh, this kind of comparison. Yes. Do, yeah. do, do you think that this this scenario, this plan, this yes. strategy is playing out now? Yeah. yeah, in those cities it is. Not in Kiev because mm -hmm. they haven't, you know, made that decision to go in with force. But it is in Kharkiv and Kharkov and um, uh, Chernihiv definitely. And if you'll notice that there was lots of talks about genocide and whatever yeah. in Aleppo at the time. And it turns out that actually it was a pretty professional and, you know, allowing for civilian casualties, the damage done to civilians and the uh, city itself was relatively, you know, uh, moderate. Yeah, and, and also the media campaign was pretty similar, right, Maria? The you campaign say, was the like same. you know the last the last hospital of Aleppo. Even now, even now, even now, they came back to that, and they are returning all that information on uh, how that uh, terrible yes. that military yes. operation was. I don't want even I don't want us to go into that because if you dare say something about it, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah and also uh, also. I just want to ask uh, because regarding uh, like in relation to to, to this uh, matter of comparing the campaign, uh, not necessarily around Kiev, but around other towns and cities to the their strategy in Syria. I'm wondering, and many people have actually alluded to that. Uh, are we are we to expect uh, a sudden uh, use of chemical weapons? Yeah, a, a, a provocation. Yeah. So there was originally a statement coming out of the White House that even I saw that even if Russia used non-conventional weapons, that that the U.S. would not intervene because of of the potential for, uh, you know, a World War Three scenario. In the recent days, Jake Sullivan, however, the U.S. National Security Advisor, has been all over the news presenting this again. Um, you know, it, it's ludicrous that Russia would use chemical weapons in this scenario, right? Russia, the military, has no use of chemical weapons. Unlike the United States, they actually abided by their treaties and demolished 
certainly the majority, if not every single, you know, last trace, I don't believe, you know, in, in, you know, complete finality, but, uh, and there's certainly no reason to believe that they would use chemical weapons here of all places. There are really stupid weapons, right? They're, 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 if, if you are, you know, uh, I don't know anyone who would use it after World War One who was sane. To be to be perfectly obvious, and but of course, you know the presentation is that Vladimir Putin is a mad dictator, and and, and you know that's the presentation. Anyway, Joe, Jake Sullivan has now said that, that this would be a game changer. So there is every possibility. Uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense put out a warning that uh, some of these uh, Ukrainian uh, um, uh, far right militias were assembling a large amount of ammonia as kind of a really pathetic attempt at, at like like Russians would use ammonia as a you know chlorine and you know gas as a chemical weapon it's something it's not even really a chemical weapon that is effective as anything more than an irritant but it would give that that provoking situation and their goal at this point is they're losing despite the information war maybe slowly steadily with, with Russia continuing its campaign to try to minimize as many casualties as they can. Uh, but, um, you know, that is exactly the type of provocation that definitely I think that you can expect. Yeah, okay, but then they say it's going yes, to be a game yes. changer. A game changer to what? How is the game going to get changed? That's Well, yeah. they, they will probably have the, the cause to, to be more aggressive, but even... But how can you even get any more aggressive than <laughs> like in, that, in terms that, of talk? That, right? is, that is probably the no-fly zone scenario. Uh -huh. The no-fly zone. Right? Let's be clear, NATO does not have the military force to go into Ukraine on the ground. They don't. The US military is not there in the numbers that are required. Germany has no tanks, right? They have none. Uh, Poland does, uh, but you know, no one else in Europe quite trusts Poland. Uh, and most of those are older models. Um, NATO does not have the ground forces to fight a ground conflict against Russia in Ukraine without taking months to reorientate and bring in American forces from the Pacific around the world. But they could launch the beginnings of a major air campaign, right? U.S. does have, uh, you know, the U.S. relies on their air power and uh, they're a very air power heavy uh, military, NATO in general. So that is a possibility. Okay, Mark, uh, for the end of this yes. segment, I want to redirect you back to the question of the uh, encirclement or cauldrons yes. as the Russians. Uh, you know, okay, so two it. more fronts. Yeah. The south out from Crimea is the Russian big success and breakout, right? They've taken all of Kherson region at this moment, Kherson city. Uh, Berdyansk, they're moving over to Nikolaev and Odessa, right? And they're linking up with the forces from the east along the other coastline. Basically, everything from Donbass to the Dnieper is now uh, in, uh, you know, under the control of the Russian military. If they take Nikolaev and Odessa, then uh, Ukraine is a landlocked country, effectively. So that's important. That's where Russia is having the greatest success. And they're going to yeah. have a land channel to the Transnistria yes. region. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ah, and that for Romanians, <laughs> I don't even want to go there. That is a big topic here in Romania. 
since this is a I, Russian I, I, Russia is not going to get involved with Transnistria and there's no indications that any forces from Transnistria have been used or will be used. And I think that Russia is also very sensitive to, to Romanians concerns over that and won't do anything to provoke on that. Well, score. let's hope so. So I thank know. you so much for this. Uh, yeah, but let, 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 let Mark, I'm sorry, let yeah. Mark finish uh, the question yeah. of those cauldrons and-, and The uh, Eastern the, Front. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the okay, Eastern okay. Front. The Eastern Front, you know, right up against Donbass, this is where the bulk of the Ukrainian military was placed, right? Because they were also clearly ready for another assault on Donbass, right? There's some 60,000 Ukrainian troops there. They were basically left pinned forward as the forces of the DNR and LNR pushed forward, right? Supported uh, by the Russian military coming in from the sides. And now that they've moved down from the siege of Kharkov and up from the south, uh, from that breakout in the south, they formed basically several lines of cauldron, right? This is the enveloping maneuver. Um, the Ukrainian military that is stuck there, right? They're extremely low on uh, fuel, uh, extremely low on ammunition, uh, munitions. Um, uh, they can't break cover and run without being pummeled by the Russian Air Force. And this is actually where the big strategic victory is. These cauldrons are essentially formed now, and they're going to be spending the next week or so tightening them. And then they will basically begin the, okay, start to surrender, or we're going to start hitting carrot, or we're going to start hitting you with the stick, which will mean large amounts of artillery. And they will continue to tighten that cauldron in the Ukrainian military. The bulk of it is in a, an impossible situation. And that is actually where they are hoping for the big pressure on on Kiev, that they will give okay. up the defense of Kiev. I get it. So, so, so for them, they imagine this could be a breaking point here. And yes. and the the question here that I have to ask for the very end. I'm sorry, I know we went over time, but I, I have to ask this question here. Like, you know, they're going to go to Zelensky after this thing, you know, uh, plays out, like the, the the kind of cauldron tightening and the demolition or. Uh, whatever of the uh, Ukrainian troops there or their surrender, maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, then, uh, you know, they're going to go to Zelensky, but aren't they somehow afraid that they are going to actually legitimize Zelensky that way? I mean, they, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin said that uh, the entire government of Ukraine are drug addicts and, and uh, yes, whatnot, exactly. like, right? Is so he now he's going to go and discuss... With this drug addict or whatever, yeah. like I, I mean, I don't know whether he is a drug addict. Okay, I, I heard. I don't. That he, I don't he believe that, and, or and I, I don't think it's relevant, right? Yeah. I, and stuff like that, you know that. That's yeah, not but, but I, I don't want to ask to focus on this. I just want to say that there's a contradiction here, which yes. I feel yeah. many people can just sense. I, when... I think there is as well. Um, I think that the Kremlin considers Zelensky a very weak leader. You have to remember, before this all went down, his approval rating in Ukraine was 23 percent. Right. Um, he had very low approval. They consider him a very weak leader, nothing but a puppet. And they might try to say, you know, you tried to follow him. This is what happened. We're just going to potentially, if he starts to capitulate, leave him be and let the far right forces in the country turn on him. And then once they take control, finish the operation. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, then they then then they can't complain that um, you know oh 
you know, uh, you know, pay no attention to Azov and uh, right sector and C-14 and Zerpasha Kirch because Ukraine, because Zelensky's daddy was Jewish, right? I mean, how can they possibly be neo-Nazis if Zelensky's dad was Jewish? I mean, that's that's the argument that has always trotted out this this red herring there. And, uh, you know, he he as an actor, he has portrayed the world and captured the fantasies of every wine swilling soccer mom in, in Manhattan, you know, and, and around the world, you know, with his. Yeah, he's got better press than Mother yeah. Teresa. Like, come on. Yes, yeah. yes, um, yes, yes, exactly. But the Kremlin would basically like to drag him through the mud of a public capitulation and then see what happens in Ukrainian politics. If that's the case, uh, let's assume it is, then yeah. why, why hasn't he actually used the opportunity uh, to escape from Ukraine, which apparently the Americans have offered a number of times so, uh, until now? Well, I really thought about it and I, I was thinking that maybe he uh, waits for the Russian to finish off the extremists and then he can reach an agreement with the Russians. Yeah, I, I don't think so because there's still enough extremists even you know in 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 kiev uh, to not allow him to do that there's too many in the security services oh, okay and those the, the, the kiev thing okay can you just very briefly say if what's your anticipation i mean is there any plan for kiev except for not taking it by force and at, at this point i mean they are assembling the force if they have to but i think at once again it is intended as coercive diplomacy and they hope not to have to use it. You, you already sealing things start to bubble in Kiev. I don't know if you saw one of the peace negotiators from the first round of the peace negotiations, Denise Kiriyev, he was shot by yeah. the SBU in broad daylight outside uh, going entering a courthouse, summarily executed as a traitor. Um, and uh, it's barely touched the Western media because, of course, it challenges the narrative of the good guy thing, right, and everything. But that clearly shows what what if they actually tried to push? What if Zelensky tried to accept the capitulation? Would they kill him too? I don't know. I don't know how things are rotten there. The former deputy head of the SPU was also shot in bread daylight two days later. There's video of that one. They actually pulled up on both sides of him, jumped out of his car, jumped out on both sides and just automatic weapon fired the car into, you know, in little switch cheese bits. Right. So things are starting to boil beneath mm. the covers in Kiev. And I think Russia, the Kremlin is hoping to give that some time to come to a boil with the pressure before they even think about, you know, the urban combat destruction that would be necessary to take Kiev by force. Okay, on this note, we're ending uh, uh, the first segment of the show. I'm really sorry that we went over time again. Yesterday's recording again over time, but this is the situation. We got to, you know, we have the obligation to provide our readers and, oh, sorry, our listeners and viewers, not only with commentary and discussion, uh, which we usually do, but also with news now, because there is just no news uh, simply uh, at the moment. Anyway, Mark, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Maria. Thank you to all people, to all of you out there listening and uh, watching our podcast uh, please don't forget to go to our patreon page patreon.com slash the barricade where you can support uh, us the independent uh, journalists from eastern europe uh, and uh, stay safe stay healthy and see you in the next segment <laughs>